vocalism? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. All right. Give me a test. One, two, three, testing. Is this anything like California? You big showboater? What are you talking about, showboat? You were in California last week. Dude, California ain't no Westmont, Illinois. One of the greatest little (laughs) places on the face of the earth, ladies and gentlemen. We're back in Chicago, and I'm glad to be here. The weather, by the way, is better here than in California, if you can believe that. I don't believe that for a second. Came back here at 78. It's cool, but but it's not cold. You can't even feel anything in your skin. The temperature is so perfect. And I'm sitting, and and the trees are going to turn. Folks, there's no better place in the fall than Chicago, Illinois, and the Midwest. Wouldn't you agree? You know, I'm starting to agree. Growing up in California, there were only two seasons. There was sunny season and rainy season. But here you get the full four seasons. You get the turning of the seasons. It is pretty nice. I'm getting pretty used to it. I'm turning into a Midwesterner even. I got one word to describe California. And this is no offense to all the Californians out there listening to the Theology on Mission podcast. One word. Guess what it is? Awesomeness. Boring. (laughs) Same weather all the time, every time I go there. It could be February, it could be September, it could be August. Same stinking weather. I'm bored. Last week, I got two phone calls from you, Dave. You start out with, I'm bored. (laughs) He literally, Dave called me and started with, I'm bored. How can it be bored when you're in California? You're not providing context for that, but we need to go. Move on. I was not bored with the class or the teaching of the seminary. No, I was not bored with the class. I was just all alone. I was all alone. My wife and kid were not out there. My family, I was all alone. You know, and I did have a lot of friends, but, you know, for half an hour, there was nothing to do. So I called you. Let's get on with it, eh? From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God, the church, and everything else. Dave Fitch and myself, Jeff Holskla, are your hosts. Well, so you were at Fuller last week, which is, in one sense, uh, a fountainbed of evangelicalism. Uh, fountainbed? Uh, what does that word mean? I don't know. Is, a fountain, is there such a thing? That there's a, it's a fountainhead or a foundation? Uh, it was a major... I mixed my metaphors there, didn't I? What is Fuller? It was in a the major world vortex of, from which the new evangelicalism came forth from after it was like uh, kind of working through its fundamentalist stage after the modernist fundamentalist right. controversies. Yes. Yes. And so people like, uh, what's his name, Mars, George Marsden and other people have kind of written about Fuller. Don Dayton, our friend, has written about Fuller as being this place where a lot of forces came together all at one time and forged a new, more intellectually vibrant, more culturally engaged, more holistic evangelicalism. Is that what you're talking about when you talk yes. about Fuller? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes. And, and that happened right around the 50s. Right. That happened around the 50s uh, along with... Um, the birth uh, of the, Fuller, the bulk, with uh, Billy Graham and his crusades going on and different kinds of things, and then later uh, the beginning of Christianity today. And so there were all these different uh, pieces that kind of began to um, express this kind of new evangelicalism. But last week I did kind of like I mic dropped, or no, two weeks ago I mic dropped a little bit at the end of our episode on evangelicalism. And I basically said, we were never evangelicals. You, Dave, were never an evangelical. I was never an evangelical. I denied that. I said that Ed Stetzer and Rachel Held Evans. I even said that Billy Graham 
was not an evangelical and people jumped on Facebook and other places and they're like, we need more of that that's or like, what's going that's on. It's like saying Ray Kroc does not go to McDonald's. That's ridiculous. The people who create the movement <laughs> are by definition the movement. So I need to back this up a little bit, right? Yes. So I got to back this up a little bit. Now, oftentimes we can define evangelicalism uh, by uh, this guy Bebbington who uh, has these four classic um, British British historian and historian right and so he not a sociologist historian right. of Christianity Church a theologian of some sorts he's from Scott I think he teaches in Scotland I could be wrong and so he has these four markers which are biblicism conversionism crucicentrism which sounds like a, a word we'd make up and uh, activism and so there's these four concerning the Bible you could, conversion activism is cross, more like evangelical more like engagement evangelism, right? evangelism yeah evangelism right and so uh, these make you know, a lot of people kind of rely on these. We uh, even think about the two of us, uh, Bernie Vandeville. He suggested that the heart of evangelicals... Vanda Wall. Sorry. Those V's and W's always screw me up. Uh, Bernie, we apologize. He, Bernie, and he's up in Canada, correct? Right? Ambrose, yeah, up there, there in uh, Calgary. So Alberta. he says the heart of evangelicalism could be defined by what often is called the fourfold gospel, which is Christ being the, the savior, the sanctifier, the healer, and the coming king. Which is uh, Christian Missionary Alliance, the denomination you and I both hail from. That's Those the earliest the beginnings. That was its distinctives. And by the way, you now have uh, uh, the, uh, oh, come on, Foursquare Gospel. You have uh, Assemblies of God. You have various other uh, holiness denominations and Pentecostal denominations playing off of those four. So it's not just our kind of small denomination. No, exactly. And so, and that even fits with maybe even Scott McKnight's King Jesus Gospel, which names the gospel around Jesus and not different activities. And so, yes. if we're evangelicals and the word evangelical is a transliteration of, you know, the gospel, then naming Christ as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. That fits, but I'm going to go with um, one, my former professor, Douglas Sweeney's definition. He keeps it short and simple. He Doug is, Sweeney at Trinity Evangelical at, Divinity School. Yes. He says that at its most basic, evangelicalism is Protestantism with a revivalist twist. It's Protestantism with a revivalist twist, and it's much, much Which older than we think. is the worst thing you think. can say about a church. Go ahead. I do. I don't think so. There's nothing. Oh, Protestantism. Right. You have this whole, yeah, you have this whole Protestantism and revivalist thing. So you're right. You hate that definition. Sorry, but I like it. So I'm sticking with it. So, but his main point is that evangelicalism is a lot older than we think. Usually, we think of evangelicalism as you named it with Fuller, Christianity Today, and other uh, institutions that came forth in the 50s as being a reaction against fundamentalism. But historically, that's not true. Evangelicalism preceded evangelicalism by at least 200 years going all the way back to the first and then the second Great Awakening. And what were two characteristics of this evangelicalism? One is that they certainly did seek revival of the souls of conversion and things like that. And so they were out preaching and teaching and doing innovative things, uh, promoting revival and conversion. But they also paired that with a, a seeking of reform in the city. And so we could say that theologically they were conservative in their pursuit of revival, but politically they were compassionate in seeking reform in the city. But that's All, using a binary that we no longer hold to, by the way. That who no longer holds to? I no longer hold I, to. Well, that's what I'm saying is it's not a binary. It's these two things fit together. They should be fitting together. And a classic evangelicalism always held um, kind of a conversionism or a personal salvation with what then became later called like a social gospel or something right. and so that works in, to reform the city. I think your main point here is, and this goes along with our teacher, 
He was actually in person, my teacher. In fact, I got an email from him last week when I was at Fuller and we were trying to get together. Uh, but Don Dayton, in his book, Discovering an Evangelical Heritage, and then in some of his other Classic writings. Classic text changed my whole yeah, seminary experience. He shows that the roots of historic evangelicalism in the United States was in the abolitionist movements, was in the uh, women's suffrage movement, was in the, the movement against poverty or the movement to work against poverty and alcoholism in some of the most desperate parts of our country post-Civil War. And so that was the genesis of evangelicalism. I think there's a lot of reasons where evangelicalism went wrong. But if you want to look where it went right, look to its genesis where it was active and engaged and and became a lot, became a, a huge movement in this country in the Second Awakening, for actually First and Second Awakening so in the United it States. It would come as a surprise to many to hear that classic evangelicals were on the front lines of abolition of slavery. They were on the front lines <clears throat> of the equality uh, for women as well as workers' rights and prison reforms and things like that. But then after fundamentalism took over in the 1920s and later, you get what often is called the great reversal and you find evangelicals on the other side of these issues. And so instead of working uh, against slavery, the later evangelicals seem to kind of miss out on the um, civil rights movement. And then the second wave feminism seems to be something that evangelicals are opposing when really a hundred years before they were advocating for these types of things. And so there's this great reversal, which is why I feel like a lot of contemporary evangelicals really are still grappling with this fundamental fundamentalist hangover or kind of corruption of true evangelicalism. But my question before you here t- today, Dave, is not that we should be looking back to evangelicalism is in the past, but is there a place that we could look even today for this true full-orbed evangelicalism? Okay, before you go there, and I know you got a little agenda going here, and that's okay. Me? Agenda? Yeah, but um, I just want to make one more point uh, along with the history of, of evangelicalism. And I, I wrote this post. You can still go to Google and post it. It's on Missio Alliance's author page now. On the wrong side of history, where we we see a lot of people saying the church is on the wrong side of history. The church didn't get uh, the church got to the uh, anti uh, um, anti racism. Um, works in this country late. We got into the, the the pro women and feminist movement late. We got in. Now we're talking uh, the various sexual, the alternative sexualities movements. We're getting to those late. I just want to say, uh, no, evangelicals were on the right side, if you want to call it that. The right. I I don't prefer to use that term, right side of history. And not the progressive side it's, either. That doesn't fit either. Right. But but the church was actually a leader in abolition, a leader in women's suffrage, a leader in the fight against poverty, that when the church got aligned with power, money, institutions of capitalism, like Princeton Seminary, not to take any one seminary down, like Charles Hodge, these are the people that were trying to defend slavery who had the most to lose in slavery, trying to defend it with the Bible. Whenever the church, this is my last point, whenever the church aligns itself with power, 
it gets on the wrong side of things. And to, and that's true of evangelicalism. When it became powerful, when it became wealthy, uh, it too started taking the wrong side of issues that God is calling us to engage in culture. So anyways, all that to say, the origins of evangelicalism are some powerful, beautiful stuff that we ought to go back and hold on to. But not just go back, as I think, and this is where I'm going. Well, I was that, giving you a segue. That, thank you. So instead of just looking back, can we look abroad, maybe beyond the West, for a classic evangelicalism that's still in existence? And I would say yes. While fundamentalism and evangelicalism and neo-evangelicalism, and this, which is really a defining kind of understanding of American evangelicalism, it doesn't. This history isn't happening all throughout the world where these things got separated, where a conservative, maybe theological orientation and a compassionate world transforming political social orientation could be fitted together. Could you summarize that in two sentences or less, please? Summarize what? Which well, part? Everything you just rambled about for the last three minutes. I, I had a hard time. No, I, I can't summarize. We got to keep going forward, man. All right. So my main point is instead of looking back, can we look abroad? This uh-huh. is the Lausanne movement. So you've been a big fan of the Lausanne movement. Yes, I am. For a while. Can you... Especially the latest jump, iteration of it. Which is the Cape Town 2010. But we'll get to that in a second. But for you, why does Lausanne... What is Lausanne? What is the Lausanne movement? And why do you feel like this might help evangelicals in America? Well, Lausanne, started by Billy Graham, was a, a world evangelization movement, which basically was an American thing that was started by Billy Graham, but in the last iteration there in 2000, was it 2010 or 2010 11? 2010 in Cape Town. Cape Town. Here we had a meeting of the majority world gathered around and United States and other com- countries of the West, churches of the West, took a, a much, found their place within that instead of trying to dominate it. And in fact, as I know some of the stories that have come forth from there, uh, there were some Americans who tried to dominate the Lausanne um, Congress of 2010, and they didn't get very far. And and so the good news is they did not get very far in terms of trying to, you know, bring their colonialist aspirations to the rest of the world. If I can put it that way, that was not a very charitable <laughs> statement. Well, Take we're going to get to that. We're going to get to um, the maybe the difference between a global evangelical. But what I'm excited about is a world. Uh, uh, coming together to talk about what is God doing around the world so that evangelicals here can learn from other people who might say understand evangelicalism differently over there and we can all learn for the furthering of the gospel all around the world. Well, and let's not take it uh, straight from Dave's mouth. Did you know that there was actually a Lausanne Young Leaders gathering in August? I did know that, yes. You did know that. And our very own, not our very own, but a friend of ours, uh, Mary Kate Morris was also there. I'll she's, say our very own. She's, she's, okay. she's, she's, she's your friend. She's I have one of us. Too often. And uh, she was there. She was invited to go there as a speaker. She wrote about this um, on the Missy Alliance. And so I'll post in the show notes a link to that. But she wrote up her thoughts on four realities that she felt American evangelicals miss out, but that she felt was reflected in world evangelicalism as she saw it um, at this Lausanne Young Leaders gathering. She, so she mentioned these four things. One is leaders are extremely diverse. They're, they come from women, poor, uneducated minorities. Two, the gospel is wonderfully contextualized. Three, and we can fill these out later. Three, signs and miracles are common in the majority world church. Amen to that. And the whole gospel is their heartbeat. And so these are some of the things that she feels like uh, 
American evangelicals can learn from this global movement. But you don't just have to rely on our post. I actually was able last week to interview Titch Throng, who was a participant who was invited along to this gathering. And so uh, we're going to play. Well, you can just listen to this interview and we have a couple comments interspersed throughout. let's turn it over to Titch Throng. Uh, We met, well, we've been friends on Facebook for uh, quite a bit, but I was throwing some of my thoughts out about uh, American and global evangelicalism online, and he jumped in talking about how he had just been a participant in the Lausanne Young Leaders Gathering. And so uh, I thought, well, instead of just talking about this abstractly, we should interview him. And so I sat down and interviewed him. Uh, So we'll let uh, him just tell us about himself and uh, we'll interject with some comments as we go. And unfortunately, there was a kind of a bad connection between us, but please bear with uh, the sound quality. Uh, my name is Titch Trong. Uh, I was born a refugee and uh, we were sponsored, my family was sponsored to Canada when I was about five, five and a half and I uh, grew up in a uh, Vietnamese Mennonite church and I would say I'm evangelical but not fundamentalist um, but incredibly Christocentric and um, Trinitarian and yeah, and I still lean back a lot of my uh, Anabaptist background as well my upbringing the first quick observation is that Titch needs to define evangelicalism in reference to fundamentalism and then fill out uh, what he might mean by that. This is something that is always happening and that I think is partly what informs how the Lausanne movement has progressed between the West and the rest of the world. But let's hear his description of his trip and the people that were there. There was about a thousand of us uh, participants who were invited to attend. The theme of, um, of the Young Leaders Gathering is uh, to connect influencers to impact the, the kingdom, uh, to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And so it's, it's a large um, networking opportunity. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a really good opportunity to just see uh, what God is doing, how God is using different people from different fields uh, to, make a, uh, to make an impact. Uh, in our world. People attending would have known that it was an evangelical gathering. Uh, Although I think it would have been uh, uncomfortable for some some of our American, North American folks uh, in terms of how Lausanne defined evangelical because we had a, a good brand, like a, a broad spectrum of folks from Anglicans and Lutherans and Methodists as well um, from the global church uh, who were in attendance um, who, would, who would call themselves evangelical. There were moments um, where we had uh, definitely um, cognitive dissonance uh, in regards to to how uh, different um, traditions uh, interacted with that term evangelical. Uh, One of the things um, that was very, very clear was um, within the Lausanne movement, there's a um, there's an affirmation uh, of uh, women in ministry, uh, recognizing that God uses women in many roles around the world uh, to, to plant churches and to lead churches and whatnot. 
Um, and there were a number of voices uh, from our Western brothers and sisters who seemed very shocked that that was something uh, that an evangelical organization would affirm. Okay. And so, I mean, that would be one of the examples um, that we had to kind of talk about uh, and navigate uh, during the course of the conference. To help make sense of this cognitive dissonance about the term evangelical and how it's associated with multiple denominations as well as ordaining women in ministry, we have to go back and remember the roots of the Lausanne Congress. So it began in 1972 when Billy Graham and his association decided to convene a World Congress on Evangelism, and it gathered in 1974. Uh, in the city of Lausanne. And to his credit, he, Billy Graham, desired uh, significant international representation by global evangelicalism. And so in the planning process um, and the topics that were being considered, there was much dispute about how exactly to um, convene such a thing and what kind of topics would be most essential. Now, when they actually met, there was kind of this flip-flop of British and American support for the Lausanne movement early on. a lot of the um, those in England uh, were kind of suspicious or weary or at least skeptical of the agenda of the World Congress, the Lausanne Congress. Um, but by the end, especially with John Stott, he was championing the Lausanne, uh, what became the Lausanne Covenant, and this kind of uh, understanding of the full gospel where it wasn't just personal salvation, which was a concern, but all of the, the, the whole person and the whole gospel. And so John Stott actually from England became a champion of this. But it is the Americans actually flip-flop on this uh, coming out of Billy Graham and his association, and a lot of the financing for the entire event came from Americans, so they started off very enthusiastically. But at the end of the conference, uh, they uh, were kind of upset about the direction that the Congress had taken. Indeed, there were many conflicting reports coming out of America while John Stott was very um, Pro Lazon, the American editor of Christianity Today, Howard Lenzel, uh, was critical of the social activism that came out of the Lazon Congress, and he made it sound like Lazon basically agreed with American Christianity when uh, there were many movements within it that did not. One, uh, just uh, to keep this concrete, one of the speakers from the uh, 1974. Uh, Congress, uh, Rene Padilla, he uh, addressed the council on the topic of evangelism and the world. And this is quoting from Brian Stanley's excellent book, The Global Diffusion of Evangelicalism. He says, Padilla's paper insisted that the gospel has cosmic as well as personal dimensions and openly attacked American forms of cultural Christianity, which had reduced the Christian message to a form of cheap grace, a marketed product that guaranteed to the consumer the highest values of a successful life and happiness now and forever. His paper also criticized the strategies of the church growth movement for treating the task of world evangelization as a mere mathematical calculation that um, our technological wizardry should be applied to. So these are quite provocative statements coming out from the Lausanne Congress about American evangelicalism. He goes even further. This is again quoting from Brian Stanley. In response to those who had questioned why he, uh, 
This is Padilla had attacked the identification of the gospel with the American way of life, but not other cultures. Padilla replied that because of the predominant role of the United States, both in world affairs and in missionary endeavors, this particular form of Christianity, as no other today, has an influence far beyond the borders of that nation. And so even at the very beginning of the Lausanne movement, there was this contested understanding of what is the gospel, what is uh, evangelicalism at its core, and how does this relate from the West and beyond? So Titch continues on and talks about uh, a certain presentation about apologetics that seem to play out these uh, tensions between the West and the majority world. I think that was one of those um, those moments where there's this this disconnection between what's going on in the West and what's going on in the global uh, church um, where the topics are different and the, the content, I mean obviously the contexts are different but the topics and even the the um, the, the, the tools of, of evangelism and tools of, of uh, theology and missiology are, are very different and um, after that, that particular talk I, I was a little worried because I, for me I've seen how apologetics has uh, both benefited but I think more often has not benefited our North American church and I don't want to see the global church going that route um, because I feel there are places in the global church that seem to be skipping modernity altogether and apologetics tends to be something that has come out of modernity it has come out of Christendom uh, and so there's some uh, there's some fear on my part where there's a, a carte blanche adoption of certain theologies and certain, certain tools which may not be beneficial for the global church. Titch then began to talk about other topics beyond apologetics uh, that the West and the beyond the West kind of maybe agreed but also disagreed about. Uh, one of the big topics was reconciliation, which I wish we had spent more time on. Uh, and also I wish that we had some representation from um, the American church to discuss even the, the topic of rec reconciliation, um, because I think that was one of the big areas that, that was lacking. But uh, we had some uh, Indian um, brothers and sisters who shared about reconciliation ministries and efforts in, um, in, in India um, amongst the various tribes and, and, and um, ethnicities and ethnic groups um, and how tough reconcil reconciliation ministry is because you have to navigate the hundreds to thousands of years of animosity between people groups um, and and the prevalent uh, prevalent um, oppression that some groups experience that other, and other, other groups don't and so um, that was an that was a very neat thing to hear that you know the global church is doing this. I still felt that there was a large um, shadow of modernity and and Christendom that that um, was covering the entire conversation piece uh, in, in regards to global mission and and, um, and evangelicalism and so um, and I think that just comes from my uh, my own background of being able to, to identify it but um, I mean even the guests that we had were people who I would call um, kind of the old guards of, of modernity and, and Christendom and um, 
and so there was there's not a lot of conversation about post postmodernism. There was not a lot of talk about contextualism, like trying to like navigate different cultures and whatnot. Even though this is generally speaking a missions conference. And so we could talk about uh, what Titch just said here about postmodernity or uh, post-Christendom and its influences beyond the West, but let's just hear him kind of wrap up uh, the more positive global aspects of uh, the meeting that he was able to appreciate. But one of the, the best parts, I think, for me was to see all the different global voices um, uh, for the majority of the sessions. We had uh, a, uh, um, a professor who was a Chinese-Australian professor uh, do exposition uh, every second day. We had an Egyptian professor, and she was phenomenal uh, in her exposition of, of the Bible. Um, we had a phenomenal worship leaders uh, from all all parts of the globe um, a couple of them actually from your own city from Chicago um, and so a couple of Latino sisters who, who came uh, and, and led us and we sang different songs in different languages uh, and there was a teaching part to that though because there was a lot of people who had who were very against learning to sing songs in Spanish or in Arabic or in Korean um, and, and so there was even an opportunity to teach uh, the of worship um, because uh, when we sing songs in, in the languages of other people we learn to, to stand in solidarity with them uh, and beautiful teaching to come out of that and um, and it was just great to, to be in an environment where I can hear different languages praising God in their own tongues So this, in one sense, is a report on world evangelicalism at the Lausanne movement. And uh, he was also, Titch was also talking about the different tensions at play between uh, the global Christianity, world Christianity, and the West. Dave, what were, what were your thoughts as you were listening to that? Oh, I uh, just think it's great how uh, Titch uh, teaches us or, or brings to light how uh, we can learn. I mean, it goes without saying, we can learn from one another. And we can learn if we don't have a posture of hubris and that we uh, know what we're doing. And so uh, that came through loud and clear. Uh, I thought it was interesting, like he talked about many parts of the global south or global Christianity where uh, um, they uh, are skipping modernity altogether, and yet we in, we in America want to, or Canada or the West want to import some of our uh, postmodern, or by that I mean uh, two different words, the things that we've been reacting to in the Enlightenment. Uh, so that's just all very, very important stuff to uh, understand. And those dialogues are immensely enriching, especially at a time when American Christianity is on the decline. Right. So he was kind of reporting on uh, both the things that he appreciated in uh, the, the majority world church and evangelicalism and the different uh, themes of reconciliation, what we would call as maybe the whole gospel, um, an understanding that uh, evangelism and discipleship is a full-bodied, full-orbed kind of process. Uh, but then he was also speaking about the tensions about how the West is still kind of exporting its own views of apologetics or epistemology or even the gospel. And so uh, looking to global evangelicalism as I uh, want us to do is not all rosy. There's 
definitely tensions and problems there. Now, you had mentioned when we were talking about preparing for uh, this episode, you had talked about uh, Laman Sana and how he kind of Sana Sana and how he makes this distinction between global Christianity and world Christianity. Now, why do you think that distinction is important, and how could it help us understand? Oh, okay. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here. So. Um, this idea is that there's two ways to think about world Christianity. Well, one is global Christianity. This is uh, a Christianity, in his view, that follows the processes of globalization, which kind of uh, follow the streams of colonialism, and is therefore, in his view, a power religion that seeks um, homogeneity, and it usually assumes some sort of hierarchy, and in, in a sense is an extension of the West. And so for him, what goes by global Christianity is exported Western Christianity through the processes of globalization. But he makes a distinction of that with world Christianity as an indigenous response to the gospel without any kind of establishment church or establishment controls. What you and I call local theologies, the development of right, local theologies. Right, a local or indigenous theology. Yeah. So he has this idea that world Christianity is an authentic uh, reception of Christianity, but this thing called global Christianity is maybe this extension of the West. And so I think so the same and, could and, be true in evangelicalism. FYI, whenever you hear the word global, and, and I think uh, Santa's playing off of this, uh, you're thinking empire, you're thinking of capitalism, you're thinking of all the all the ways the uh, the uh, historic socioeconomic developments of the West try to take over the world. Right. And so I think uh, Titch was kind of expressing some of those uh, tensions there between maybe those two different kinds of evangelicalism. One that is being an extension of American evangelicalism, and the other one is more of an authentic kind of movement that stems all the way from maybe the classic evangelicalism from two, three hundred years ago. A uh, quick side note uh, where uh, Santa makes this distinction is in Whose Religion is Christianity? Uh, that's the book that we are kind of pulling that from. Yeah. So as uh, I want to say, if we're going to look at uh, evangelicalism as something that we want to aspire to be and maybe aren't currently, uh, can we look to world evangelicalism? Can we look to the Lausanne uh, world movement? Or are we just going to continue to be mere American evangelicals, of which I'm not sure I want to be a part? Yeah, so uh, I don't know if you're, you're getting to a wrap-up here, but I think it's important here to understand uh, one dynamic. When we say world Christianity, when we talk about it in those terms, this means the United States, Canada, West, comes into a dialogue where we do not try to dominate, but we go in a posture of listening and learning and dialogue as opposed to the posture that we have historically uh, naturally done. And, and you know, folks, uh, even when we talk about, uh, you know, economy. And even some of the most well-intentioned people say, well, uh, we are only 5% of the world's population and we're devouring 60% of the world's re- resources based on GDP. And, and, and then, uh, I know I'm going off on a little rant here, but we just see the world in terms of capitalism, GDP. Do you realize most gross domestic product, uh, it, stuff included in there, the the third, the, the global south would never... Uh, uh, understand as product like oh when you go talk to a shrink that no you just go talk to somebody that's not a that's not a economic product all the ways we think all the things we produce that nobody needs i'm sorry those are that's capitalism that's and we just can't stop ourselves from talking about the rest of the world in terms of our own terms and so that's one lesson secondly if i can just put it this way I fear that like when we put world Christianity courses in our U.S. seminaries and we try to, 
you know, we try to do this thing that I think maybe you're trying to do. Hey, let's become more conscious of world Christianity. We start to use world Christianity to develop a better Christianity. Again, it's us doing the same thing. That's why I'm only interested, when I talk about evangelicalism, I like to start with the contextual evangelicalism, the story that has happened, like last time we talked about evangelicalism, well, fundamentalism and and progressive evangelical Christianity. Where are we going to go with this in our context? I'm not interested in making broad prognostications about what we, the evangelicals of the world, need to do to bring Christ to the world. So you want to be an indigenous expression of Christianity here in America. And and that goes along with evangelicalism. All right. We can learn from the world evangelicalism dialogues. I've even learned just from listening to Titch today. So there's so much to learn, but let's not get imperialistic about it. Absolutely. Amen. Well, that's going to conclude our part two to uh, this whole idea of what is evangelicalism. But the episode's not over. You know why it's not over, Dave? Because we need to do Theology Gone Bad. We need to do the winners of last week's Theology Gone Bad. So you ready for these, Dave? I have no idea what you're talking about. So last week we uh, started our contest, our Theology Gone Bad contest, uh, where we have weekly... uh, winners who are put into a random drawing for a monthly prize or a grand prize, which is going to be in December. The grand prize will be uh, to sit in on an episode of Theology on Mission to get a signed copy of Dave's book. Um, Faithful Presence. Faithful Presence. Uh, and so it would help so last if you week, knew the name of the book when you're going to like to promote. I, I got uh, it all right here. <laughs> so last week was worship music or worship songs. Now we got a bunch of good ones here. What was the question? We're going to read a couple. It was Theology Gone Bad based around worship songs or worship music. So here's a couple that came in. So uh, this is from on Twitter at The Great Swalami, which I think is one of your students, Dave. Oh, wow. He says, Theology Gone Bad is this lyric. Some glad morning when this life is o'er altogether now, I'll fly away. Actually, someone else did that one, too. Uh, someone said, Some glad morning when this life, life is, is over. over. I'm going to be so glad you're when this be, life is over. Fine. Wait, right. Way to go, Mike. That's a good one. So someone jumped in also with uh, people who complain about that new music, but then they want I'll fly away and when the saints go marching in, which is just a retreating to heaven kind of you know problem. Yeah. So then there was another one, uh, The Becca O. She was worried about this lyric. Uh, it's from a famous song that uh, has been redone multiple times, Oh, How He Loves Me. And uh, the lyric is, And heaven meets earth with a sloppy wet kiss. And she wonders uh, how that's going to go with a bunch of... Is that really around. the actual words of that's that song? That's the actual words. Oh, my God. Actual words. So another one says, uh, All those people... Theology Gone Bad is all those people who complain about contemporary worship's repetitionists. Repeti- repetitiveness. Repetitiveness. Thank you. I can read. But who have never seemed to have read Psalm 136. You know what Psalm 136 is? It's the one where every verse is and his love endures forever. Yeah. It's like, thanks be the Lord for this and that and his love endures forever. That's a good one. That's a All right. One. So then uh, another one on Facebook, Becca Osborne, she says, uh, there's a song called, uh, and these are the days of your servant David rebuilding a temple of praise. Called This is from the days of Elijah. So that's the line that your David your servant David rebuilding the temple. Now, Dave, do you do you sense anything wrong there? Uh, your servant David rebuilding a temple? She notes that David was specifically told that he could not build the temple because he was not a man of peace and Ooh. that he was long dead before anyone rebuilt the temple. And so she secretly uh, replaces David wow. with, with Zerubbabel, wow. <laughs> which I love. Okay, now there's 
Uh, actually, I'm going to save that one for last because it's just too much. Uh, another one jumps in with the prevailing pop Christian cultural concept c- conflating worship music and or worship with music and singing. Oh I yeah, say that wrong. Well, right? That's Jim Robertson. He's just saying, uh, why do we keep calling worship music or yeah. music is worship? Where actually Jim's a good Anglican, or at least got that blood going through him and he wants to say hey worship is so much more than singing a few songs i agree theology gone bad for worship is uh when i get to lead at my church but i've been told we can only sing happy songs that are upbeat because that's what all the psalms are like right right wrong a lot of downer psalms in there and that's okay because expressing sorrow is a good thing so dave you know what our job in here is it's it's to pick the top three that we like the best now I saved this one. Top three, yeah, the top three. This one is the the, the for sure winner, and I was gonna stand. I was gonna save this for last. So uh, it goes like this. This is a hymn, uh, and if he had just written the title, I would have thought he was making this up. So this hymn is called "If Men Go to Hell, Who Cares." If men go to hell, who cares? And he took a screenshot of this hymn, and it's from a hymnal, and I have these words. These are the words. If men go to hell, who cares? While the world rushes on in folly and sin, and millions go down in despair, terrain where demons are shrieking within, if men go to hell, who cares? <laughs> Can you believe that's a song? Who I'm, wrote this? I'm, I'm speech- That right there is theology gone Bad. I'm speechless, man. So, Russell Zare, you're definitely the winner for this week. You're one of the top winners. Dave, do you have I another one that's I can believe out? this is actually true. I mean, well, it sir looks true. I We're going to see the words on the little picture of the hymnal you got here. We're going to post this. It's hard to believe, ladies and gentlemen. All right, what are the other two that stand this out? This is true. You can see. Is it the sloppy wet kiss? Was that the one that that uh, that kind of was rubbing you the wrong way? Uh, that really rubbed me the wrong way. And uh, then, uh, well. I like Swami's idea. Some glad morning when this life is o'er. Ah, fly away. All right, okay. that's theology gone bad. Entrance number two, and I'm going to go with uh, the days of Elijah with uh, Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple. If you're going to sing because about all these historical a, things, it's like you can at least get your chronology right. I think the reason why you like that one was it was a very theologically astute uh, observation about him to be. So that's this week in theology. You're not God interacting bad. with me. You're so hep on getting this podcast over. You just, no, no, I'm not. I said something really funny. I didn't get a laugh. Or <laughs> People out there are laughing, but you, okay, all right, yeah. I'm all about the theologically astute. If you want theology, you're gonna make you go- this funny. You got to have laugh tracks or, or at least openings for people to laugh. All right, every time you tell a bad joke, I'll drop in a laugh track. I, I promise. So this week's uh, theology gone bad is is here and gone. But next week we're gonna do leadership. Theology Gone Bad around the theme of leadership. So each week, three people will be qualified for the monthly prizes. Uh, and I already told you what the grand prize is going to be. So you can enter three uh, two different ways. Is You can enter on Twitter with the hashtag Theology Gone Bad, or you can enter on our Facebook page, the Theology on Mission. And what are they supposed Facebook to do? Just say something funny about leadership? Uh, and you drop it in the comments. Yeah, you just say something funny about uh, leadership gone bad in the church. Uh, hopefully it's an observation. Eh? An observation make it or... A- Hopefully it's not a too many true stories that'll make us cry, but right. it's possible. And keep it to like two sentences. And if you want all the contest details, you can go to our podcast page. We actually have a page now, so that's found at seminary.edu slash theology on mission. All right, so let's wrap this up. Dave, what are you reading this week? Um, I got a copy. Excuse me while I bend over. I gotta get this book. I got a copy of the Forgotten Ways by Alan Hirsch. It's the tenth anniversary edition forward 10 years already guess who the forwards by 
Uh, Ed Stetzer. Oh, Ed Stetzer. Okay, and I actually we claimed not to be an evangelical. Well, in case I you missed it. I think he's an evangelical. I'm not going <laughs> to own that one. All right. Uh, this is what I said about it. The Forgotten Ways is one of those books that I find myself revisiting again and again and again. It is foundational for understanding mission and irreplaceable as a guide for the church's new situation in the West. Man, can I write a good blurb? The landmark <laughs> book for our missional movement. I could not be more grateful for a book. So anyways, Forgotten Ways, I'm not reading it, but I did. there's some added material that I did read. It's as good as ever, ladies and gentlemen. The Forgotten Ways, Alan Hirsch. And I've been reading a book called A Theology and Outline, Can These Bones Live by Robert Jensen. It's a really short uh, book. You're it's reading a, Jensen, it's eh? based off of, yeah, you know, I haven't read too much Jensen, so I figured Way I would. Way to go. So it's a good short Lutheran. book based off of a bunch of lectures that he did, but it's just like a concise introduction to how he sees theology. It's pretty good. There's a lot of good zingers in there. Uh, the idea is... It's the key. Uh, from, zingers. From uh, the prophecy of Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones, he asks, uh, can these bones live? And he starts with resurrection and things like that. So it's super interesting. So uh, just one last point. You, in order to be a good theologian, you got to be able to string a good Have the set of zingers. Zingers yeah. are key. That's right. Amen to that. That's probably why I'm not zingers a good Zingers are key because they consolidate a, uh, a very deep, long thought into one sentence and nail it. All right, well, we have gone a little bit longer than normal, but that's because we had a very weighty uh, topic that we needed to get through with a pretty interesting interview. How long so did thanks this go? For, uh, that's good. So thanks for hanging with us. How long did uh, it go? Next I week, we're going to be talking about leadership. Uh, it's about 40 minutes or something oh, like that. Oh, it is long. We better rush out So we're going to talk about leadership. We're also going to talk about should we got, call God Father still? That's one that's been lingering out there. And we have a new team member that we're going to introduce pretty soon to uh, to join us and help us out with other Theology conversations. Theology on Mission team member. Yeah, the team is growing. So be ready for that. Please uh, subscribe so you don't miss any news, any episodes. This means you're going to have to buy prizes. another mic, by the way. I have four mics all together. We're only using two currently. I come prepared. This awesome. sound studio is prepared. So, so ladies and gentlemen, signing off, signing off on another episode of Theology on Mission, I have who to my right? Uh, I'm in front of you. It's Jeff Holzglaw, Dr. Claw, as and I prefer. And Dave Fitch from Northern Seminary. Over and out.